0: We're back with The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Joining us today for our Red Hill History call-in show is Jim Gammon. He knows the Red Hill facility intimately. He spent 24 years there as superintendent and general engineer for the fuel department at the Naval Supply Center, Pearl Harbor. He retired in 2004 and joins us from Florida. Good morning, Jim. Good morning. Well, I should say good afternoon, I think, with the time difference. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, I'm just sure with Red Hill in the headlines, you just must have been flooded with memories. So I really appreciate you uh, spending time with us. Uh, also on our show today is uh, James Murray. He's a retired editor and public affairs officer for the Fleet Logistics Center, Naval Facilities Command. He served there for 30 years and retired in 2015. He uh, currently lives in Foster Village. Good morning, Jim.
1: Good morning, Catherine. It's good to be here.
0: Well, like I mentioned with the headlines, I'm sure uh, you gentlemen are both being flooded with memories. And uh, Jim Gammon, I don't know, has the Navy reached out to you because you have institutional memory? Uh,
2: Several years ago, after the uh, uh, leak from Tank 5, which was occurred in December of 2013 and January of 2014, uh, I was asked to participate in one of the um administrative order of consent uh, activities uh, developing uh, new um, test and inspection and repair uh, guidelines for the red hill tanks yes that was my involvement
0: and then uh, uh, you know Jim Murray I mean I know you know you were involved in public affairs and you uh, I think you retired just right after that uh, leak in 2015, uh, but I can just imagine how busy it is now.
1: I imagine it's crazy up there. Um, the, the 27,000 leak occurred one year prior to my retirement, and for that final year, I just sort of lived and breathed Red Hill, uh, constantly dealing with media, arranging community meetings for after hours and... Just doing so many things that uh, by the time I walked out on January 2015, <clears throat> excuse me, to retire, I was pretty happy.
0: <laughs> well, I'm, I hope you're re- enjoying retirement. But uh, I really do appreciate uh, both of you gentlemen uh, being uh, willing to share your stories. Uh, you know, maybe we should set the stage. You know, I was uh, doing some research online and, and found a, a Navy film. It was produced by the military, and it was found on a blog by Admiral J.C. Harvey. Uh, but it kind of shapes uh, the political landscape at that time.
3: As the 1940s began, the world was in turmoil. In Europe, a resurgent Germany threatened peace. In Asia, Japanese troops occupied large expanses of China and threatened to take more. America, isolated and protected by two great oceans, was unprepared for the coming conflict. In Hawaii, at Pearl Harbor, a particular concern was the vulnerability and inadequacy of fuel storage tanks. Unprotected above-ground fuel tanks containing the entire fuel supply for the Pacific Fleet were scattered about Pearl, easy prey for enemy attack or saboteurs. To remedy the situation, it was decided in June of 1940 to build underground tanks.
0: Well, you know, Jim Gammon, uh, I think we just marked an anniversary uh, on the fuel storage tanks, didn't we?
2: Well, yes. Uh, The bulk fuel, the first bulk fuel storage, uh, which are the tanks that he mentioned that were scattered around Pearl Harbor, were constructed in 1923, so and 22. So we are we are at the hundredth anniversary of bulk fuel storage at Pearl Harbor. Before that, it was a coaling station, um, and uh, uh, of course, it wasn't until the 40s that uh, that the um, above ground tanks were um, replaced with the with the underground storage of Red Hill.
0: And, you know, it is interesting just the juxtaposition of where we're at with Red Hill now and it's it being in the headlines and so open about what's going on because we've got issues in Europe uh, and in Asia, uh, you know, across the Pacific. Uh, uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, Jim Murray, what are your thoughts?
1: Uh, I'm mainly here to discuss the history, so I, I don't really want to you know reflect too much on what's going on these days with the leak issues if that's okay
0: Oh yeah no I'm just talking just about the political climate with the the global tensions uh you know where it was such a big secret with the underground tanks and today you know there's just so much information that's uh, available and out there uh because this was you know declared a, a you know a a, land, a landmark uh, civil engineering uh, feat and and you helped to Put together that application. Uh, maybe talk about the research that you, that you had to do.
1: Uh, yeah, it was extensive research. Um, it probably took us six months to a year to to write that to the satisfaction of the reviewing committee. And uh, Jim Gammon helped a lot with me, and uh, another fellow, Bob Martin. He also contributed, and and uh, yeah, it was a heck of a lot of work, um, but uh we finally got the application done and it was accepted by the uh, American Society of Civil Engineers and uh, designated a National Historic Civil Engineering Landmark. And that put it on par with um, places like the Hoover Dam. Um, And uh, let's see. Oh, yeah. Other places that have been considered uh, national ASCE landmarks, Hoover Dam, the Golden Gate Bridge, Washington Monument, Mormon Tabernacle. Uh, I could go on and on, even the Panama Canal. So the Red Hill Underground now finds itself in very good company.
0: And, Jim Gammon, talk about, you know, how long you folks prepared to submit this because this was a a secret project and it wasn't until the 90s that they decided look this was something worth sharing because it was so monumental
2: well i was told that it was a secret project and there were certain aspects of the job that were uh classified um and in fact uh i went looking for a drawing one day and uh it turned out to be uh in a locked vault up at the, uh, Pacific division of, of NAVFAC. Uh, that drawing was later declassified. I think it had to do with, with how the, uh, electricity, uh, how Hawaiian Electric got the electricity into Red Hill. Um, so that was very close hold information. Um, uh, but, um, you know, uh, The workers who were there in the early 40s were told uh, you're working at a, I guess, classified or secret facility, and you're not to tell anybody about this. And uh, that, you know, back then people lived by the axiom that loose lips sink ships, and they didn't tell anybody. Uh, And when we got designated uh, as a national historic uh, engineering landmark by the American Society of Civil Engineers, uh, at first the ASCE thought, well, we'll just come out to the CEO's office and we'll have a handshake and give him a plaque. Well, our CEO at the time said, nothing doing. We're going to have a party and we're going to invite everybody we could find uh, who had anything to do with the construction of this facility because the people who did that construction never received any uh, acclamation for what they did, working on an extremely dangerous project. Uh, And so it fell to me and Jim to try and uh, find these guys who were scattered to the four corners of the globe. Um, I had two CDs with just about every telephone number in the United States. And if a guy had an unusual name, I uh, was able sometimes to to, uh, get a hit And uh, I would call him up and tell him who I was and what I was about. And invariably, I was met with dead silence. Uh, Here's somebody calling me up 50 years after I worked at Pearl Harbor and asking about something I was told never to say anything about. And uh, I I, I shouldn't be talking to him about this. Well... I would go on and on and on and tell them, you know, that it was no longer secret and that uh, uh, no longer uh, classified and so forth. And eventually, they came around. And uh, thanks to uh, Jim's work and uh, and what I was able to find, we were able to bring. I think uh, it was about five or six hundred people. Uh, probably about half of them were from from the islands. And the other half uh, came from the mainland, and some of them were um, some of them uh, were families of Red Hill workers who had passed away, who had heard their uh, relatives or father, grandfather talk about it, but it was so unusual, such an unusual job, that they they really didn't have a concept of what it was like. Uh, shape of the tank and and so forth and the size of the tank and so we rigged up a a clean tank Uh, it was it was set up so that people on wheelchairs could roll in and uh uh, if you if i would stand out at the center of the tank and watch uh particularly the relatives of the red hillers walk into the tank and you could just see light bulbs come on in their face finally they they understood what Dad or Grandpa uh, had worked on all those years, uh, and they couldn't believe the size of it. Uh, and it just—it was a revelation for them. <clears throat> Excuse me.
1: Yeah, there was um one fellow at the, the ceremony, Philip up. Philip Genovese of Connecticut, and uh, he said the moment he walked into the tunnel for the first time in you know fifty or so years. He said he could uh, instantly hear the thunderous crescendo of a hundred jackhammers. And uh, I thought that was pretty neat when you figure how it must have sounded down there when they were working.
0: Yeah, sounded and smelled, you know, and and we will get to uh, more of the story of the workers, but let's go back to that film clip uh, talking about the design of Red Hill.
3: Red Hill. Originally the plan was to tunnel out four large horizontal tanks. Red Hill was large enough to allow for these tanks with plenty of room for expansion. One evening during dinner at the Halakulani Hotel, George Yeomans, the project manager, and James Groden, the consultant, were discussing the project. When Groden brought up an idea he had been mulling over, what if the tanks were vertical instead of horizontal? Quickly sketching his idea on a cocktail napkin, Groden proposed a series of tanks lined up like enormous underground wells. The big advantage to this scheme was obvious to both men. When tunneling horizontally, the excavated material must be loaded into trucks, hauled to an adit, the mine entrance, and transferred for disposal. With the tanks in a vertical position, a center shaft could be used as a waste chute down to a conveyor belt to whisk the material to the disposal area. Soon, cables were moving back and forth between Hawaii and Washington. There, Admiral Ben Morell gave the go-ahead. The plan was simple, yet audacious, to build 20 tanks vertically underground. Tanks had been built underground before, but usually horizontally. These would be huge, 250 feet high and 100 feet in diameter. They would look like giant capsules standing on end, though they would never be seen.
0: Yeah, never be seen. And uh, I just was struck my first visit in one of those tanks and peering over the the railing. And, yeah, your heart just kind of drops <laughs> because it's a long way down, it's like 20 stories high. Uh, but, yeah, uh, I don't know. Uh, Jim Gammon, talk about that, you know, the design, you know, sketched on a napkin. It, it, it's just amazing.
2: Well, I, I think that's probably a true story. Uh, a little background on the men involved. Uh, George Yeomans was um, uh, the head guy for uh, Morrison Knutson. It's a com- big construction company from based in Boise, Idaho. Uh, their claim to fame was they're the company that built uh, Boulder Dam. So they were uh, used to... Uh, huge projects that involved a lot of reinforced concrete. Uh, James Groden was a consultant. He was actually consulting uh, with Morris and Knudsen on some of their tunneling jobs, and that, George Humans brought him over to Hawaii. Uh, he was from the Alcoa, the Aluminum Company of America, and his job, main job for Alcoa, was to go around the world and find locations where they could build a dam a dam into which they could install hydroelectric power generating equipment and nearby the dam would be they would construct an aluminum smelter uh, because making aluminum requires huge quantities of electricity and if they could make the electricity without um, creating a you know environmental problems from burning fuel uh, they did, uh, so uh, that's the story. Uh, yeah, it all happened at the Holly Kalani Hotel.
0: Yeah, it's amazing, you know, because as as I was looking through some of the newspaper clips and some of the 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 clips from the, I guess it's called the Red Hill, The newspaper was the Red Hill. Oh gosh, Jim, help! Uh, Jim. The Mar- Underground. The Underground. Yeah, I mean just amazing stories about life there as a community, the community that that developed uh, just bringing these people from, you know, across the the continent.
2: Right. You want to go ahead, Jim?
1: Oh, I I was just going to say that it it was interesting about how the races mixed um, because you had – People like uh, you had Kahanamokus and O'Briens and Domingos and Levantons and Hamadas and Helmicks and, you know, um, men who had never, you know, from the mainland who had never even seen a Filipino or Chinese or Japanese or Portuguese or Hawaiian, you you know, that they were just working together, sweating and straining side by side. And uh, it was just a big melting pot under there.
0: Well, we will get back uh, into that history, uh, but we do have to take a break. You are listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. Our guests are James Gammon and James Murray, who worked uh, for decades over at the Red Hill facility. We are talking about the Red Hill history. Join us by calling 1-877-941-3689. Stay with us. We'll be right back after the short break.
4: Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Honolulu Waldorf School.
0: If Hawaii Public Radio's mission of community service resonates with you, and if you're a service-minded self-starter with an eye for detail and a facility with databases, Our full-time membership coordinator position may be just the job you're looking for. Find out more on the Employment Opportunities page at hawaiipublicradio.org and let us
4: hear from you. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Cole Academy Child Development Centers for ages six weeks to six years. Locations downtown, Kapolei, Kailua, Mililani, East Oahu, and Kona Kohala. TheColeAcademy.com.
0: We're back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. And, you know, one of the workers uh, at the Red Hill facility was a gentleman named Charles Borner. Uh, and uh, Jim Murray, I know you said that uh, that uh, Charlie was uh, probably the most knowledgeable about Red Hill, uh, with the exception of uh, Jim Murray. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, no. He was the most knowledgeable, and, mm-hmm. and Jim
0: Gammon is
5: the Jim other. Jim Gammon, most I'm sorry, Jim Gammon.
0: Yeah, so so Jim Gammon, uh, you know, uh, uh, tell us uh, about uh, about Charlie.
2: Well, Charlie was a young engineer, uh, and he got a call. They were gathering engineers and workers from mainly miners from all over the United States, and he was working, I believe, for one of the com- one of the Eight companies that was part of a, a consortium that Admiral Morrell put together to do work, build bases, basically all over the Pacific. Um, and he was working at the on the Delaware Aqueduct in New York at the time, which was, a, I believe, a mining job. And uh, thought he'd take a chance and came to Hawaii. And he became an inspector on the job uh, and followed the construction. In detail, um, so he knows everything about the place. I actually visited him a couple of times after he retired over in beautiful Hana, Maui. Um Charlie, after the, the, um, the war was over, Charlie went to work for the Navy at Pearl Harbor in the engineering department, and he became the resident expert on Red Hill. For the rest of his career, anytime there was uh, something that needed doing or they needed to know something about called Charlie
0: well, we were fortunate enough uh to talk to uh, his daughter uh, this morning uh Lynn borner Nakim lives on the big island at Pipicao she's eighty four years old, and uh, she remembers uh, coming here. She was three years old when her family came over from uh, upstate New York. She said her father was a tunnel engineer at the time when he took the job. Uh, And uh, anyway, so here's what she had to say this morning.
5: Okay, and I'm as horrified as anybody about the tanks leaking into the water supply, all right? I'm as as appalled as anybody that it was built where it was built. My dad didn't have anything to do with choosing the site. You know what I'm saying? He was an inspection engineer. Were they building it the way the plans called for? And he used to go there and walk on a little walkway at the top of the tanks looking down 16 stories you know over a small railing right and that is pretty scary to me
0: she remembers uh being uh, at that ceremony with the family i did talk to her brother uh who uh chuck who still lives in hana and he said that that's what he remembered his father didn't really talk about uh you know what he did but he remembers being there at that ceremony and uh he just remembered his dad was so proud uh, of the work uh, that he and all the, the other men uh, did that day. Uh, but here's, uh, here's more of what Lynn had to say. Years later, 10 years after
5: retirement, dad was so pleased when the Navy started calling him and asking him stuff about the tanks because he was the walking expert on the tanks. And so here he was, you know, 75, 78 years old and they were calling him up and asking him stuff because you couldn't find it in the file. You had to ask Charlie.
0: So, you know, as we uh, watch all the things unfold, you know, with the uh, investigation over there at Red Hill and the emergency response, I mean, I'm 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 sure, uh, Jim Gammon, you know, you must just, you know that there's just so much to deal with, and, and it's true. It's like maybe, you know, what's actually there is not, on file somewhere it's not on paper
2: well that could be you know there were a lot of mysteries about red hill but i think they've through dint of effort they have uncovered uh, what they need to uncover so that at least in the last couple of years the tanks that are being repaired uh, have uh, high confidence that they're being repaired well and their life could be extended um particularly the contractor that's working now, which is used to be Chicago Bridge and Iron, and now they're called Aptim. And their work is being overseen by a company called Enterprise Engineering, uh, in addition to the Navy inspectors. And uh, these people are excellent. They've got a lot of experience at Red Hill. So uh, for some of the recently repaired tanks, I have pretty good confidence. Uh, Also, the initial inspection is being done by a company uh, a little company out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, who uh, has uh, devices that will look through a steel plate and see if there's any corrosion on the back side of the plate. Of course, the back side of the Red Hill plates are up against uh, the concrete envelope that surrounds the tank, so you can't, you can't see them. Uh, but their, uh, their equipment will find a, a corrosion on the back side of a plate, and if there is, uh, even if there's no hole through the plate, you would uh, – if the corrosion is significant enough, you would put a doubler plate, weld a doubler plate on the inside of the tank so that you have plenty of steel uh, between the fuel and and the concrete.
0: And we were, had been chatting earlier, and I know that there had been some contract uh, that the military, uh, I think, had awarded with – a it was a French company, I think, some kind of a lining on the tank, potentially –
2: Yes. uh, It's a company uh, whose forte is putting liners into uh, LNG tanks, I believe, aboard LNG tankers, uh, liquid natural gas. Um, I don't know much about it, uh, but they're hoping that, uh, I think that, or they were hoping, uh, that this would constitute uh, a double-wall tank uh, with this, uh, this lining device. And I, I think they were awarded a contract for a pilot project in one tank. Uh, whether that's going to continue now, uh, I don't know.
0: And let's get back to talking to the workers uh, that dug out those tanks. Uh, let's go back to the, uh, a clip uh, from the Na- that Navy film on Red Hill.
3: When finished, the miners had carved out of rock a shape resembling an upside-down bowl. The next step was to cover this bowl with the steel plating that would serve as the lining of the dome. First, a framework of steel H-beams was pre-assembled above ground, then brought down and installed around the dome of rock. Next, 144 sections of quarter-inch steel were cut to size and brought down to be welded together to form the inner lining of the dome. It was precision work, for every weld had to be perfect with not even a pinprick-sized hole in any joint. The work was hard, and the conditions were tough. Heat and dust rose, never to settle. The spaces were small, and the danger of a collapse was ever-present. This work was being done hundreds of feet underground, in tunnels blasted again and again, where the rock ceiling was weak and fragile. Death was a looming presence at Red Hill. On average, a man died every two months building this formidable project
0: and jim murray uh I believe the total number of fatalities was what seventeen
1: yes seventeen that's correct
0: and uh gosh, you know talk about you know how those men died just accidents on the job okay uh, yeah,
1: I'll be happy to do that. Let me please go back and mention one little tidbit about Charlie Borner about. Mm-hmm. You can see how much he loved his job at Red Hill. He worked there for 33 years, and in that entire time, he did not take a single day of sick leave.
0: Okay. Wow, wow. that's remarkable. Yeah. <laughs> Work ethic.
1: <laughs> oh Yeah, definitely. But as far as the workers, um, two-thirds of the workforce were actually recruited locally, and— um, about 800 of those workers local workers were Japanese because as um, many of your listeners know after the attack on Pearl Harbor Japanese were no longer welcome to work on the naval base but they did uh, allow them to work up at Red Hill and so many of them were trades workers and and they just fit in perfectly working at uh, Red Hill and they um but the, the mainland workers, the, they were rug, rug, rugged and gritty tunnel men who had um, built the Golden Gate Bridge and uh, Hoover Dam and uh, various other amazing projects all, all across the nation. And they were brought here. And um, it, uh, yeah, they just melded with the workforce, um, uh, you know, all the different races. But uh, the They they did really well together. It was a real melting pot. Um, And actually, in addition to the local Japanese, Filipinos also made up a major portion of the local labor force. And we even had uh, some well-known names like Sam Kahanamoku, who was working there. Um, They uh, housed the work. About 1,200 of the workers were housed in barracks at Red Hill, where they... They had their own mess hall, they had a rec room, they had a swimming pool, a baseball field, a field hospital, post office. Um, No liquor was allowed in the camp, which which didn't go well with some of the workers. But, um, yeah, but uh, some of them, they would come here and they'd go inside the tank and they would just freeze, and, and according to one person, uh, I'd say uh, we would have to send a man down to pry them loose. The temperatures inside the tanks when they were building them would often exceed 120 degrees. So, the miners were pretty inventive and they rigged up their own air conditioning system, which was wooden airplane that were, propellers that were powered by generators. But I think Charlie Borner described it the best, and he said, "quote It was like working on the inside of hell." But uh, yeah, and
0: uh, well, well, I, I know that they they were saying that there was an average of like a death every two months. Oh yeah, that's
1: right. Let, let me go into that, please. Let's see. I, I, okay, yeah, on on average, a worker died uh, every two months, and uh, death was usually sudden and violent. Um, one worker was electrocuted, one was buried in a cave-in, two were asphyxiated in the shaft, one was shot by a guard, one was killed in the December 7th attack, Uh, many died in falls, Uh, one drove into a train, two got caught in a conveyor belt and were pulled to a very grisly death, and... um, the, the fellow who died in the Pearl Harbor attack—that's kind of interesting. The, the attack occurred right as the ships were changing at Red Hill. They changed at eight o'clock, and the uh, attack started, uh, you know, a few minutes prior to that. And Red Hill was a 24/7 operation, so it, there were always always a lot of workers there. And so when word got down into the tunnel that there was something going on in the skies up above, uh, they they ran out there like angry ants whose nest had been disturbed. And Japan actually had no idea what was being built there, so they didn't strike Red Hill, but some of the planes saw all those workers standing out there, so they did, you know, strafe them. Mm-hmm. And one fellow, his name was Daniel Laverne. Um, He was a worker in one of the tunnels who went outside, and he fled for cover, but before he could make it, he was strafed, and he died three days later. He was initially from Puerto Rico and California, but he was a professional boxer and a member of the coaching staff for the Catholic Youth Organization. And uh, his his remains were sent back to his home in San Mateo, California.
0: And uh, Jim Gammon, you know, I mean, uh, 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 Jim Murray talked about uh, uh, Sam Koh- uh, uh, Kahanamoku. There was also Joe uh, uh He was an athletic director, right? He was in charge of the the programs right, over sports there. Sports recreation. Mm-hmm.
2: Former UH football star. Um, uh, in the camp, uh, of course, you had about eleven hundred. Guys that lived on top of Red Hill in the camp, like Jim said, um, but all 3,000 ate there. Uh, and they served about seven meals a day. The chef the Navy had hired from the St. Francis Hotel in San Francisco as the camp cook. And these guys, they worked hard, but they had great food. Um, The other thing they had in the camp was their own gambling hall, so they didn't have to go down into Honolulu where they could get fleeced by the local interests there. Um, Entertainment, they had musicians, dancers, jugglers, comedians, all sorts of things, uh, in addition to the sports and recreation program to keep the workers on the site. Uh, These were mostly the ones that had come from the mainland, and they had paid a high price to get them across the United States and then across the Pacific Ocean to Hawaii, and they didn't want to lose them.
0: Well, if so you I... just joined us, uh, this is the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. You can join our discussion about the Red Hill history. Our guests are uh, Jim Gammon and Jim Murray. Uh, uh, call us at one 941 3689 But stay with us. We'll be right back after another short break. Mm-hmm.
4: Support for H.P.R. comes from Magnolia Boutique and Gallery in Kahala Mall, open daily, with artworks and home furnishings that reflect the life and colors of the islands. Featuring Annie Sloan chalk paint, shipping available. Magnolia-Hawaii.com
0: Just over 25 years after R.E.M. released their album, New Adventures in Hi-Fi, Michael Stipe joins me to talk about that album and to discuss his own creative process.
2: I've worked my whole adult life to try to create versions of pop songs that don't have lazy, crappy lyrics in them.
0: Michael Stipe on the next
4: World Cafe.
3: Beginning tonight at 8, following Left, Right, and Center.
4: Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative.
0: You are back with the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. And, uh, Jim Gammon, uh, talk about, you know, the sense of community, I guess, that was created uh, amongst the workers. Uh, any other stories you can share that shed light on?
2: Uh, well, I did want to touch on a, a sad note it, uh, to add to what Jim Murray said about the, the people who perished. Uh, two of the people who perished were actually in a boat inside the Red Hill tank uh, looking for Leaks. They had a way of pumping air behind the steel um, skin of the tank, the quarter-inch steel plate skin. And they would fill the tank. Well, not fill it, but they'd raise the water in the tank, and workers would go around in a little boat and look for bubbles coming through the plates, indicating a leak. Um, And then they would lower the water to expose the leak, and in doing so, one time, uh, a large air bubble came up through the tank and flipped their little boat over, and unfortunately, they couldn't swim, and they drowned. And Then the problem was, how do we retrieve the bodies? We certainly can't open the valves, because that might draw the bodies into the piping system and make an even bigger problem. And so they called on the Navy divers from the submarine base, and um, they were bit wary because the water was quite deep at that point, and uh, no Navy diver had ever uh, dove in, in water that deep, uh, but they did it anyway. They were able to retrieve uh, the bodies, and in the process, they sent a rec- set a record for uh, the deepest dive to that point in time uh, made by a Navy diver. Uh, ironically, it wasn't in the ocean. It was in a tank inside of a mountain.
0: Wow, incredible story. <laughs> you know, we did put out a call uh, for, uh, for uh, to our listeners, if anyone knew anybody who worked at Red Hill, and we got a couple of things. Uh, Hinson Chun uh, wrote in, said, My mom's fr- uh, friend's husband was a welder in the early 70s. He was the first person to make me aware of these massive fuel tanks. His job was to weld up the cracks in the walls of the tanks. It gave me pause as I wondered how you could strike a flame in a fuel-rich environment. But he said they were massive tanks under Red Hill, and I asked him how big he said gymnasium size, and then I heard from a retired colonel that there was a tunnel under Foster Village that you could drive a truck through. In light of today's news, it makes me wonder how long these fuel tanks have been leaking. And Jim Murray, you still live there in Foster Village, right?
1: Yes, I do. Yeah, and the, the, the tunnel goes uh, just a few houses away from me. Of course, it's 100 feet underground, though. Um, but um, I, I don't know if this still occurs now, but um, years before when the train would run run underground from uh, Red Hill to Pearl Harbor. In fact, a- actually, we didn't mention that. I don't know if the listeners realize that there's. A, we have our own mass transit system 100 feet underground going from Red Hill to Pearl Harbor. It's about three and a half miles, and uh, workers often use it to ride back and forth. But um, the the around Foster Village, I believe the tunnel is about 100 feet deep. But as it nears Red Hill, it, it uh, ascends so that it's not quite as deep when it passes under parts of uh, Aliamanu Military Reservation or Red Hill. And uh, uh, house owners in Red Hill would claim that when the train passed underneath them, they could feel their house vibrate. <laughs> <laughs>
0: In- interesting a uh, fun fact i guess
1: uh, yeah by, by the way um when we're talking about some of the uh, deaths at um red hill oh um you know a lot of these uh workers from the mainland especially they're real roustabouts that uh you know just rough and rough and tumble guys and so um But after the attack on Pearl Harbor, the the Navy implemented implemented very rigid security measures, and they sent a Marine Guard detachment to Red Hill, and they remained there until the project was completed. But some of the workers were totally unprepared for the inflexibility of uh, Marines under orders. And so one worker was heading up to the gate, and uh, the Marines told them to halt and he did not bother to halt, and they shot him, and they killed him. And uh, the camp had a very politically incorrect newspaper at the time, and they even put a a very short four-line poem in it um, about it. The worker's name was Gulp, so they had this short poem that says, Here lies the remains of war worker Gulp. He paid no heed when a sentry yelled, halt."
0: Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, and
1: one thing that I think Jim Gammon can give you more information on. Uh following the attack on Pearl Harbor, uh a procession of trucks loaded with uh dead uh um mainly sailors from Pearl Harbor, uh went up the hill to Red Hill and um and in the valley that runs alongside Red Hill a uh, power shovel and bulldozer hastily excavated several long trenches, and the Red Hills carpenters constructed coffins, and they had surveyors determine exactly where each body should be placed, and by nightfall after the attack, 204 bodies had been laid to rest, and the last seven of these bodies were Japanese airmen, and years later, the American dead were interned at Punchbowl. By- you know, I don't know what happened to the Japanese dead that were interred there. You know, Jim Gammon usually knows a lot more than I do, so perhaps he can he has some idea on that.:
2: I have no information on the uh, on the Japanese who uh, were buried at the what was known, I believe, as the halaba Valley Cemetery. Um, what happened on that morning since we're talking about December seventh. Um, work of course was ongoing when the attack started and, and the work continued in, inside of Red Hill on about 10, 10 a.m. At that point, everything came to a stop. Um, all the trucks and bulldozers from Red Hill were ordered to Hickam, Ford Island, and Connie to repair bomb craters in the runways. Uh, they sent, um, uh, welders and other workers to, uh, down to the fuel pier, to hotel pier. And on hotel pier, they laid out along the pier, which is about 1,200 feet long, they laid out pipes because uh, when the uh, Arizona sank, it crushed the water line from the Pearl Harbor base over to Fort Island. And so they welded together a pi- uh, all these pipes on, on the pier, pulled the pipes into the water. They were floating, of course, and then they dragged them over to, I think, Hospital Point on the naval base, and since that was the shortest distance over to Fort Island, and uh, filled the pipes with water, sank them, and then connected the two ends, uh, one at Hospital Point and one on Fort Island. Uh, Other crew from Red Hill, uh, the dynamite crew and welders, uh, went to Fort Island because the Tennessee and the battleships Tennessee and Maryland Were pinned against the uh, the big uh, uh, moorings there. The Tennessee was pinned uh, by the West Virginia, which was sunk, and the Maryland was pinned by the Oklahoma, also sunk. And so they uh, set their blasting to uh, to deal with these uh, these mooring structures. Uh, It took four times to set off the Blasting powder on the on the first one, which was the next to the Tennessee, but uh, eventually they got it, and the welders came in and cut the rebar, and the concrete cut it loose, and they were able to back the Tennessee out from between the mooring and the West Virginia. It's um, the yeah those were the four of the things, just four of the things that uh, the two thousand workers, three thousand workers from Red Hill. Uh, participated in after the uh, after the or the day of the attack and thereafter
0: well you know i should mention that uh, when we talked to Lynn uh, borner and akim this morning uh, she said that uh, she and her mother i think were at makalapa housing and their father uh, charlie was uh, up at red hill and he watched the bombing uh there from that post we also had a couple of uh, other listeners uh, uh write in uh chuck William Steiner said his father, Charles Chuck Steiner, worked at Red Hill during the installation of the fuel storage tanks. In 1940, the Boise, Idaho International Construction Firm attained a a Navy contract to help install the underground tanks. And realizing that hard rock miners would be needed, the firm put out a call for men working silver, gold, and lead mines in Idaho. My father and some of his friends answered the call, and he shipped his new Ford Coupe to Hawaii, and they went off for a grand adventure. He began in the hole as they called it, and worked his way up to being foreman on the rigging crew, which operated a huge crane that lowered steel to build the tanks uh, underground. Uh, He said that, uh, uh, yeah, that the the bombing of Pearl Harbor was always a point of discussion when Red Hill came up. uh, He never talked about the work much, but uh, 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 William Steiner said that if it had not been for that day, I believe I would not be here today. Uh, He is retired and now lives near Pahoa on the Big Island uh, but, you know, a, a miner, you know, who came over and uh, his family still lives here today. Yeah. I don't know. Jim Gammon, you want to uh, talk about, you know, s- some of the other uh, workers that were needed?
2: Well, uh, as Jim said, about two-thirds of the workers uh, were from the islands. Uh, uh, particularly two groups that were singled out for high praise were uh, the Americans of Japanese ancestry. Many of them were the welders. The welders were absolutely essential to this project. Each tank has about five miles of welded butt-welded seam in each tank, in each tank. So a uh, tremendous amount of welding. They were absolutely essential to the Completion of the project, and the project had barely been started uh, when uh, when December seventh, forty one occurred. Uh, and so, what they did was they gave the uh, Japanese uh, Americans of Japanese ancestry a special pass, and they were allowed to work in the tanks, but they were not allowed to work in the tunnels under the tanks.
0: No, well, they didn't trust them.
2: There was there was never even the slightest hint throughout the entire project of anything like sabotage. Uh, what, what the people that established the need for this past failed to realize is a man is working on a job, a big job, an important job. His loyalty is to the job and nothing else. Uh, the other group that was singled out for high praise were the uh, laborers, most of whom were of Filipino origin. An interesting story. With with the workers, Um, even though they lived in town, they all ate their meals at the Camp Mess Hall. Uh, The guy was running the mess hall. He had quite a job feeding all these people. He finally hired the native orchestra from the Royal Hawaiian Hotel and had them play every noon hour at the mess hall. Then he got the Royal Hawaiian waiters to serve chow. We lived like kings in those days. Remember I said they had a great chef. Uh, in charge of meal preparation. He says, and you know, the best labor we had were the Filipinos. Boy, could they eat.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, I
2: just found out that they served seven meals a day for all the different shifts, and they'd sneak off the job every time the gong rang and eat all seven.
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, I I have to uh, interrupt you here because we've only got about a minute left. Uh, Can I just have you, I don't know, give your final thoughts? Uh, Jim Murray?
1: Yep. I can give my final thoughts, okay. uh,
0: Catherine, if you'd yes. like. Go ahead. We have okay. about 30 seconds.
1: Uh, yeah, real quick, the, a couple of things to point out. You know, this job was uh, unprecedented in scale and scope, but it was completed nine months ahead of schedule, which I think is amazing, especially when you think about our real project
0: these days. Um, uh, and Jim, Jim Gammon, you want to uh, add anything in here? We've got about 30 this seconds. Project,
2: this project was a real credit, to the, particularly to the people of Hawaii who made it happen. They deserve all the credit they can get. And if I could just read the names of the people that helped me while I was there. Operators Alan Takamoto, Michael Lau, Leo Blancaflor, Hugh Emanuel, Clayton Fong, Jimmy Rodriguez, Herbert Kikuchi. Maintenance personnel, Eddie Katata, John Kimmy, Henry Sanders, Vic Peters, Steve Butler, Fuel Laboratory, Joe Ozaki, Dueno, Norman Kawamoto, Accounting, Karen Fujita, and Margaret Nishimura, and last but not least, our wonderful dispatcher Patsy Yoshimura.
0: Well, just a few names of the many who worked at Red Hill and who still work there today. But we thank you, gentlemen, uh, Jim Gammon and Jim Murray, uh, for your time and your uh, your memories, uh, and we thank the listeners for joining us on today's show. <laughs> What are your thoughts about Red Hill, past or present? Call talkback talk back line, 808-792-8217. If you want to listen back to today's show, check out the conversation podcast at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday for more of the conversation.